The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Philip Henscher, the novelist and journalist whose books cover a wide variety of subjects, often dealing with important historical change. Among other subjects, Philip has written about the fall of the Berlin Wall, the First Afghan War, the independence of Bangladesh and growing up in Sheffield. As a journalist, he writes regularly for us here at The Spectator, and he's also a professor of creative writing at Bath Spa University. His latest novel is To Battersea Park. Philip, welcome to Table Talk. Hello. Philip, we'll start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? My mum was a, a very sort of inventive cook, and I think one of the first memories I have was of her making the weekday dinner of mince and mashed potatoes, irresistible to a small boy, by christening it Nests. There was this dish called Nests, and it was just a dollop of mince in a a circle of mashed potato. And there was such a kind of romantic thing for me, romantic and poetic. That uh, That was lovely. And the other thing that I remember loving when I was a very little boy was liver, which must have been very convenient for my uh, my parents living on a tight budget. I adored liver when I was a little boy. Isn't that strange? That was a more unusual taste for a for a small child. And what what were meal times like? Uh, they well, this is sort of the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, and um, I can hardly believe it now. But we used to say grace at every meal, and. Um, We'd have water to water to drink, and if we were very lucky, um, some orange squash, but not every day. And uh, at the end of meal times, we had to say, "Please, may I get down?" And um, I think my my mum was actually quite a um, quite an adventurous cook. And I think a bit later in the seventies, we did start to see all sorts of things like chili con carne and. Um, um, and even you know even curries, homemade curries appearing on the the table, or one unforgettable dinner time when my mother went uh, went all out and she produced um, avgolameno, the Greek lemon soup, which she'd found in a Reader's Digest cookbook. And I'm sorry to say that it was not a great success for my dad. <laughs> and, uh, my mum got rather upset because she'd spent the whole afternoon making it. Anyway, um, no, she was a she was a, a, a good adventurous cook actually, and I think uh, I think she kind of passed that on to me. And did you cook with her as a child? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the um, what kind of things did you make with her? Well, my very first uh, culinary duty when I was uh, five or six was uh, making the gravy on um, Sunday Sunday dinner, and um, um, I've always been uh, very keen on the theory of gravy. I love making gravy, um, and then. Um, what is the theory of gravy? What, what's the? Oh, of, I, couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly go into it. It's so baroque and detailed now. But uh, you need a bit of um, you need a bit of flour. 
It needs to be something um, scraped up from the bottom of the pan. I've never understood it. Sometimes the joint doesn't produce enough kind of crusty stuff, and then you have to um, resort to artificial means. And then um, the potato water and... Um, something a bit more flavoured these days. It's um, it's uh, it's red wine, and then whatever sort of um, spiced up additions you feel like—a bit of mustard, a bit of Henderson's relish, the great Sheffield equivalent of uh, of Worcestershire sauce, um, or or anything really—and um, then kind of um, you know go on adding liquid until it's got the the right uh, right consistency. Um, and then after the gravy. I remember making cheese straws and then before you knew I was making biscuits and I don't know why baking always comes first in culinary learning experiences because baking's terribly hard I think. It's very hard but I wonder if it's a bit more low risk in that the meal itself isn't necessarily oh, ruined if it goes wrong. Maybe it's like a sort of easier <laughs> yeah, one to... That must, <laughs> that must be it. But it, it, it goes wrong much more often than anything else I think. Yeah. And Philip, what about school food? What are your memories of, of that, that time uh, of your life? Um, I don't really have very many, actually. I, mean, I went to uh, state school and to comprehensive and um, school dinners. What were they like? I can't remember anything, actually. Um, no, I think um, for quite a lot of my school days, I did actually um, take sandwiches because um, my mum's sandwiches were always much nicer than anyone else, anyone else's. <laughs> And what about when you left school? You yes. you went to Oxford yeah. to study. Was that more memorable than school food or less so? Well, um, that was really the, uh, the time when I uh, properly started to learn to cook. And particularly when I was in um, a student house in my third year, um, I used to, um, you know, dig up all sorts of things. I remember... Um, I remember cooking spaghetti carbonara for the first time, following the instructions on the back of a um, packet of spaghetti. I don't suppose it came out very well because I was using all the wrong things, but it was a good, uh, it was a good start. And uh, by the end, I, I, you know, I could do, I could do things quite confidently. I could uh, roast a chicken. I could uh, make a lasagna, um, and uh, you know, they w- they would get better over time. And then uh, I did my, I did a PhD at at Cambridge and I had the very the great luck of um of having a of going into a relationship with an Italian and Italians are the best critics of food and they will tell you immediately when something isn't right <laughs> um and certainly you know would present something that I thought was perfectly good and no this was not good. This was absolutely not good. And the meal was wrong. The order of the meal was wrong. And what do you mean you want a cappuccino and it's uh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon? That cannot happen. <laughs> and I think uh, that sort of rigidity and the sense of when things are correct or incorrect is... It's not a bad one to have in your your mind, mm. and um, I think as my as my cooking has kind of gone on, I've always kind of wanted to know what is actually wrong, you know, what is definitely and decidedly wrong, and what could be more correct. Um, in a way, the, um, the 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 journey that I've gone on is. Um, you know, you could trace it with the, the various carbonaras I've made over the years. And now my 
you know, my carbonara is so austerely perfect. You know, <laughs> What's the secret to a well, good carbonara? You don't use pancetta. You don't use bacon. You use guanciale. Yeah. And um, you use uh, one egg and one egg yolk. No cream, of course. Mm. There's no cream. Um, and I use Marcella Hazan's suggestion that you fry a, a, a clove of garlic in the guanciale fat first and then remove the, uh, um, remove the clove and then splash it all with a, a bit of white wine and then it's, it's fine. But it's become very austere, <laughs> my, uh, my carbonara. I, do, um, I, I believe in correctness in, mm. uh, in food. Quite right. <laughs> And, and you spent six years working in the House of Commons as a clerk, yes. and then you, you things sort of, well, you lost your job after your novel yes. Kitchen <laughs> Venom came out. Can you tell us, for readers who, for listeners rather, who haven't um, come across your book, can you tell us what was, about what was in it and... Well, particularly the kitchen part, what was, what was that? Well, um, it, the Kitchen Venom is a phrase from uh, a novel by one of my favourite novelists, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, she says that one, one, one of her characters comes out of a kitchen where her sister-in-law has been chopping parsley with more than what seemed to her kitchen venom. And uh, I've always been fascinated by that, the way in which... Emotions can be taken out in small on small things like uh, parsley chopping. Um, it's about um, the uh, the end of Mrs. Thatcher's period, told by uh, told from the point of view of uh, House of Commons clerks, which uh, which I was one. Um, it's uh, it's scandalous and uh, it's full of uh, full of violence and sex and ex- you know bad behavior really i wrote it to be sacked so i was i was completely i was completely fed up with the house of commons by that stage and uh, and it worked i loved being sacked i loved being sacked i can't recommend being sacked enough to to people um yeah it's it's had a strange sort of afterlife that um that novel actually because um people have sort of picked it up over the the years it's never been you know a huge bestseller or anything but um it um, it got a paragraph in um, Charles Moore's wonderful biography of Mrs. Thatcher, oh. oddly, um, and there's been you know people are, people occasionally write to me about it. So I think it's uh, I think it's all right to um, to have a novel that's still interesting. A few people, twenty seven years after it's uh, it's published, you never know. Maybe it, it will become a bestseller. <laughs> Weirder things happen after people listen to this podcast. Yes, yeah, like. <laughs> You mentioned Marcella Hazan before. Are you uh, are you a strict follower of recipes, or are you an inventor when it comes to to being in the kitchen? I'm a strict follower. I'm a strict follower and a comparer of recipes. Um, I adore the the woman in um, um, in the, the Guardian. Uh, is it Flisty Cloak? Who, yes. who just goes through about 20 re- recipes for a single thing and then produces what she thinks is the platonic essence. And I think it's, it's completely right. I am a strict follower of, of recipes. Um, I live with somebody who is very much a sort of improvisational cook and um, will turn up sometimes and say, I've made this... Um, I've made this salad, and I was like, it looks as though it's a combination of mango, beetroot, and horseradish. <laughs> and he says, yes, that's right, that's right, isn't it delicious? And I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> so, no, I like, uh, I like finding out about culinary um, traditions. 
Um, I like doing things correctly and just seeing what they uh, what they're like in the kind of ideal ideal form. And as well as the Italian interest for it, what other culinary traditions have you discovered or become particularly enthusiastic about? I've had uh, I've had patches with all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my Christmas present to uh, to Zav was um, Fuchsia Dunlop's wonderful um, uh, Sichuan cookbook. Yeah, we, and, had her on, we had her on the podcast. Oh, which back. is wonderful. Yeah, oh, which is wonderful. And uh, a big box of Sichuan things. Um, and uh, we've been we've been doing that. In fact, I'm cooking a big Szechuan dinner tonight. Mm. Um, what are your go-to Szechuan dishes? I love um, I love mapo tofu, um, the really classic one. Um, there's a, a really delicious um, chicken with chestnuts dish that we cook all the time. And I love the um, the bitter gourd. Um, I I, th- I do think that um, we don't re- in in this country we don't really value. Um, bitter vegetables enough and bi- the bitter taste but I think it's a wonderful thing to bounce something else off um, there's all there's a different bitter gourd that we have in um, in in Bengali cooking called Korela my, my husband's uh, Bengali um, and um, that sort of crept into all sorts of things it's delicious uh, next to um, a, a roast shoulder of lamb um, and sometimes it needs uh, your guests need a bit of persuading you know there was one <laughs> there's one was one who said that it was it tasted like eating your own earwax but uh, well, I like it I like it yeah. and do you enjoy hosting yes I love it I absolutely love it um I I never understand what people mean when they say um say that they can't stand having dinner parties they find dinner parties stressful you know I I, I adore it. You just bunk, bunk something in the oven um, that doesn't need much uh, much attention, and um, and go for it. And then what kind would of, be your go-to? Oh, a shoulder party. of lamb. A shoulder of lamb. If you've got you know six people coming, and um, you know then um, get out some oysters. You know, I always think you know opening um, opening a dozen oysters in front of people it always gets a party off to That's a good true. start. <laughs> um, and uh, decide what cocktail you're going to have. We uh, we love a cocktail. Like, what's your go-to cocktail for a dinner party? At the moment, well, I think it's very important to change your cocktail from time to time and not to have the same cocktail that you were serving in 2008. <laughs> Cocktails are very kind of fashionable things. So last year, the fashionable cocktail was an aviateur um, a uh, strange kind of purple little drink. Um, but this year I have decided in a kind of unilateral way that the go-to cocktail is an aquavit sour. Mm. And that's uh, very good. And this is just the just the, uh, the the weather for an aquavit sour, I think. Um, but uh, no, you know, you need to keep up with cocktails. And are there any literary references that you turn to for no. dinners? You no. Just do it completely by, you know, <laughs> no. there's no kind of... I have, kind of I have a theory. I have a theory. I have a theory that all meals in all meals in novels are disgusting. <laughs> Tell us more about that. That sounds like a great theory. See, you know, in Proust, the Duchesse de Guermont gives her guests orange squash after dinner. What? <laughs> That's insane. And I think you know that the, the you know the Berfondobe into the lighthouse sounds awful. 
Sounds absolutely awful. But Virginia Woolf didn't know anything about food. Do you know in her last novel, written in 1941, a character opens a bottle of champagne with a corkscrew? She had no <laughs> idea. She had no idea at all. Um, what is good? I, t- I tell you what, there's one, there's one meal in the whole of fiction that I can think of that, um, that really sounds delicious to me. And it's when um, Miss, Mrs and Miss Bates go to um, Emma's father's for dinner in Emma and he orders sweetbreads and asparagus for them but it comes and he tastes the asparagus and he thinks the asparagus isn't done enough so he sends it away and I think oh oh I bet that was good oh I bet that was good <laughs> sweetbreads is one of my I very was going to say it's an awful one of your you, you're an awful man is that right I am <laughs> I am I love awful I love it. <laughs> it's not. It's uh, it's partly you know the um, loving liver when I was a little boy and always always loving it. But I think it's kind of um, just a kind of they're just kind of good, interesting, complicated flavors. And also there's a kind of hobby element to to it. You know, if you want to um, if you want to cook a brain um, or sweetbreads, indeed. Um, you can't just kind of bung it in the oven. It's something that you have to prepare and soak and um, and strip the membrane away. And am I selling it? No. Have, 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 you, have, you, done, have you done that? Have you cooked a brain? Have you? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay, oh yeah. 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 We have a. In fact, um, we have a wonderful butcher in Clapham, Mr. Moen. You know, can I plug Mr. Moen? He's the most wonderful butcher. <laughs> And uh, they sort of know me and my awfully ways. And the other day I went in and uh, the butcher said, um, I've got a lovely brain for you, sir. <laughs> how, would, how would you cook it? What's your um, brain my, um, speciality? Well, if I, had, if I had an hour or two, I would, I would soak it in milk. I would poach it. I would strip away the membrane. I would cut it into slices. I would dip it in egg and breadcrumbs and then fry the slices um, and have that with a nice green sauce. If I was a bit more pressed for time, I would make a brain curry. I think that there is nothing more delicious than a brain curry. Um, if If you want the greatest brain curry on earth, there's only one good restaurant left on Brick Lane and it's uh, it's called Amagao and it's uh, it's really a kind of traiteur it's um, you kind of wander in I've never seen anybody non-Bengali in there um, it's really good and they make the breast brain curry known to mankind it's so good and speaking of restaurants where where else do you like do you enjoy eating out and if so where where are your favorite places <laughs> we we have sort of um, uh, a dozen favourite restaurants that we've been going to for years and years and years um, is a big deal when a new restaurant comes into our life that we would go to um, again. Um, we very much like uh, Boca di Lupo in, uh, in Soho. We've been going there for, well, been going there since it opened, actually. And um, um, Ottolenghi's restaurants, those are our kind of posh choices, I reckon. And then there are... Um, there are kind of fallback places. There's a Thai restaurant in Clapham that's so wonderful that I'm not going to mention it because it's busy enough. And <laughs> it's uh, it's very frustrating to go there and uh, and you can't get a table on a Thursday night or something. That is frustrating, but it's it's wonderful. Um, where else? Um, Amagao on uh, on Brick Lane is great. It's the one remaining restaurant that's actually kind of authentically 
Bengali cuisine. It's uh, it's very very good. And Bengali cuisine, you know, if most Indian restaurants in this country are run by Bangladeshis, mostly from Silet. But they kind of cook what they think you you're going to like. They don't um, cook fish. It's one of the great fish eating cultures, and they don't cook the kind of vegetables that um, that they really that is just so characteristic of uh, of Bengali cuisine. Um, and and talking of fish, talking of fish, you you are a fan of a fish market. Yes, I was thinking. Tell us about where, where does that it's, it's come an, from? I was thinking actually that. If I really thought about the kind of half dozen absolutely transcendental meals of my life, um, most of them are fish. You know, um, one of them was a um, not necessarily a kind of you know expensive or or flash one. One of them was just a fisherman on a on a beach in um, in Brazil who just roasted a sea bass over a fire. Oh my god, that was good. Or if you ha- if you're in Oslo of early of the morning and you go down to the quay at six a.m., the fishermen kind of come in with uh, bags of prawns that they've just caught and often cooked on the way way back to to port. Those North Sea prawns when they're just cooked, oh, they're good. You know, I love it. No, I love fish and I love fish markets. Tell us about that. What is what's the kind of interest? Because when you a really great one, when you peer into a bucket, you never know what you're going to see. (laughs) That's true. It's absolutely (laughs) extraordinary what you can see. Um, I think my um, my my greatest um, fish market experience was um, we went to we went to Japan on our honeymoon, and of course you get to you get to Tokyo, and it's the worst jet lag you'll ever have. And we woke up uh, the day after arriving. It was four in the morning, you know, so ready to go. And, you know, but it was four in the morning. So I said to Sam, I know, just around the corner, it's the Tokyo fish market. So let's go to the fish market at 4.30 in the morning. And we did. Oh, my days, you know, people... Presumably that is the time to go. That is the the time to go. See the tuna auction to, to go and have, you know... The greatest sushi in the world for your breakfast. Can you eat that? Can you eat yeah, the market? Yeah. Oh, well, you could. This is twenty years ago now, but um, the the market was absolutely surrounded by um, uh, by sushi bars, and uh, oh my god, it was good. It was absolutely really sensational. Uh, it has moved now. There was some there was some kind of talk about excluding tourists from it, but I hope not. I hope not. I haven't been back since uh, since then. And Philip, when you're writing, I mean, well, I put this question into two parts. When you're writing, what what is your kind of, do you have any routines that you follow, particularly with kind of food and drink? And also, do you like to incorporate food into your own writing? Do you, I mean, you've said you don't like it in other, other writing, but yeah. do you incorporate it into yours? Less and, well, incorporate it less and less, I think. I think it's quite difficult to ignore it as a novelist because it's such a good guide to uh to character you what your characters are like and also to where and when they are you know i, I wrote a novel about um, um about change of england between kind of the mid 1970s and the mid 1990s and um, uh, a very kind of easy way of doing that it was just to kind of go into the difference between what people served at parties in the mid 70s and what were what they were starting to 
handout in mid uh, mid nineties. You know, suddenly. So it's uh, a bit like your cocktail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes, and I think that's something that we hardly hardly notice. But if you were given if you were given a nineteen seventies dinner party now. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. You really wouldn't believe it. You'd think it was ironic, wouldn't you? Now you'd be yeah. sort of probably very fashionable to. But I, I mean, some of it was really good. One of my favourite cookbooks is um, Simon Hopkinson's uh, The Prawn Cocktail Years, and he, re- I mean, it, it looks as though it, it, it's going to be a kind of ironic sort of book. But he's really gone into what those recipes were like, and um, some of them, uh, you know, it's just sensationally good recipes. The, uh, the uh, Boeuf Bourguignon, um, I do all the time, and um, and his... Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking about uh, the domestic catastrophe that happened the first time I cooked Boeuf Bourguignon, because he calls for a pig's trotter split down the middle to be... <laughs> and uh, you always have to conceal the worst kind of crimes of offal from Zav, because he doesn't really like that sort of thing. And uh, and I had to pretend up to the last moment that Mr. Moan had by mistake put in a pig's trotter um, and then throw throw the pig's trotter away. And, and <laughs> anyway, it was just terrible. And is there is there anything that you, when you're writing, that you find yourself eating or drinking particularly? Well, I try to be a mealtime sort of person and stick to breakfast, lunch and dinner um, with uh, tea. Tea is a, a very occasional treat with a cake. So, um, the, I mean, breakfast is breakfast is just breakfast, you know, whatever needs to be done. Um, but um, I write, if, if I'm writing a novel, then I write between 7.30 and 10.00. So after that, my day is mine, really. And um, preparing the brain, or yes, preparing the brain, <laughs> yes. And it's a very nice, it's very nice relaxation, I think. Cooking, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing nicer than uh, spending um, um, <laughs> spending half an hour meditatively peeling beetroot or something. I love that. And what is comfort food for you, Philip? A risotto. A risotto, I to think. To make or to eat or both? Both. Yeah, both. And as simple as possible, I think. Um, I'm, I think um, uh, a risotto milanese with, uh, with saffron in it is just so soothing. And there's something miraculous about it. I love those... Uh, those transformative recipes that you you know you can't really believe that it's going to happen but it does does happen in the in the end what else what else is comfort comfort food um um yeah liver and onions that would be very comforting to me yeah. and do you have a sweet tooth i don't actually no it's um it's an odd one um I mean, it, it's fine, you know, I'll eat it, but I can't, I always have to, if I have people around for dinner, I always have to remember, oh, yes, you've got to make a dessert. <laughs> what would you make? Uh, a, um, uh, a rice pudding, maybe, or I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, um, the, the incentive to making a rice pudding is that um, I very often have it with the one flavour combination that um, I believe I in, I've invented. And I think it's brilliant, but um, um, I, came, I just had this vision of it one day, and it's rhubarb and lavender. And it's 
absolutely brilliant. Not a, not an enormous amount of lavender, mm. just you the pinch. You infuse the lavender milk with well, you the lavender. No, or? you just um, no. I have it with a sort of um, um, just a, a, a dollop of, uh, of rhubarb to have with, alongside the. Uh, uh, right, sorry, the yeah. lavender's in the rhubarb with the Yeah, yeah, the lavender's in the rhubarb with some with some sugar. And there's something about the the two flavours, they kind of they harmonise very well together. Olivia, try it out. I will. I will you'll see it in the in, in six weeks' time in the vintage chef. <laughs> I'll have come up with this incredible combination yes. that no one would have thought of before. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly your podcast won't air. I mean, it's no coincidence. <laughs> No, no, I don't. I don't need. Uh, I don't need credit. But I don't think. I think. I genuinely think that it's it's the only combination of flavours I've ever invented. You know, and uh, and I don't think. I don't think that. I don't expect it ever to happen again. But um, anyway, so that's why I have rice pudding because it goes very well with rhubarb and lavender. And so to end, we like to ask our guests what their their desert island meal would be, um, which by which we sort of mean ultimate meal, death row meal. We're not going to make you yeah. unless you want to be fishing for your own fish in a desert island. You don't. Have have to do that um what what would be your absolute ideal meal to end on oh i think it would definitely be oysters nine oysters because six <laughs> is never enough and 12 is too many nine oysters um sweetbreads with asparagus and to finish a cheese that i'd never had before I, th- I think that's one of the great joys. You can <laughs> Have all. Have you tried most? I mean, what what would be a cheese? That you well, have? no, I think, that's the, I think that's the joy that every so often a cheese does suddenly surface that you've never had before. It's kind of inexhaustible, the world of cheeses. It's true. What's come to your attention recently? What have you discovered? There's a mad um, Swiss cheesemonger in London called Yumi, J U M I, and uh, they've they do experimental Swiss cheeses and. One of the ones they've come up with is called a blue brain. And it's a blue cheese, but they ask very rationally, why does the blue mould have to go through cheese in veins? Why not just encase the cheese in a layer of mould? And then you eat the mould as well. And it's, <laughs> I have to say, it's psychologically quite challenging. How does first. it look? So it looks like a whole ball of mould. Yeah. Within... yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and if you if you get the old one, it's very shriveled. <laughs> anyway, I get the I get the young one. It's absolutely delicious cheese. It really is. But um, you have to kind of gird yourself up to think I am going to to eat a layer of mould. Uh, I don't think anyone's died yet from no, it. No. Well, on that note, Philip, thank you very much for joining us on Table Talk. <laughs> thank you very much for asking. <laughs>